Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this pre-Christmas December day. This week, we're going to be talking about Joe Biden finally, finally performing well on the debate stage, the ongoing Warren versus Buttigieg war, and of course, Amy Klobuchar. Is she finally about to break through this race? Last night's performance indicated that she might be. I am Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy. Every week, we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can, by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in states that will matter. And today, I'm joined by Emily Cadet, McClatchy's political correspondent. Emily, so good to have you here. It's great to be back. And making his return to Beyond the Bubble, David Cadenes. David, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Okay, so I have to say, you know, we all watched the, the debate last night. We wrote about it, and it, for the first time since maybe the first debate in June, at least just speaking personally here, I am actually interested in finding out what the polls say after this debate, because to me, this was the liveliest debate we've had. This was featured maybe some of the, the, the most important confrontations that we have seen so far. I understand that Christmas is going to kind of slow everything back down, but it feels like an important moment in this primary and maybe a preview of what we can expect over the course of the next month in the run-up to Iowa. But first, I want to talk about maybe an unlikely strong performer last night, Amy Klobuchar, the Minnesota senator who has crept up a little bit in the polls in Iowa, but not much really seemed to shine, according to the New York Times, actually spoke for the second longest amount of time on stage. Again, this is not someone we really had our eye on heading into this debate, but time and time again, Dave, she was able to distinguish herself as a Midwestern senator who gets things done and, oh, by the way, I can win elections. And my question for you to open us up here, do we think that this is potentially the start of a breakthrough for her in Iowa and nationally? I think she won the debate. I think she won the night. I think she was crisp and confident and was out there for contrast. She had the contrast early on with Bernie Sanders on trade. She obviously went at Buttigieg and his experience and sort of defending her own work as a senator versus a small town mayor. She was on offense and playing to win. What I don't think we know yet is, and Emily referenced this before we went on the air, how many people watch this debate? Mm-hmm. And then now does it sort of disintegrate into the holiday ether. Mm -hmm. I think the lesson we have found from these debates is you've got to find a way to capitalize on it beyond the debate moment. So that means press, momentum, or a concerted message. Does she take some of these messages of contrast onto the, the trail in Iowa and does that produce, you know, news? Does that produce a bigger following? Uh, does she have a larger press corps next week? I think she's doing an Iowa County tour. I don't think you can just rely on the debate. That's what we have found so far, right? We haven't seen huge bumps except for Kamala Harris mm-hmm. in, in, out of that first debate when, when she came down. So It was a short-lived so it was short, a short-lived It was bump. a short-lived bump. So I think just looking at what we've seen so far, we haven't seen large polling movement after the debate. Now we're about to enter a new phase. I would just say that we are in a time period where this could all disintegrate very quickly because we are in the holidays. I don't think that's going to be a record-setting viewership debate, given that it was on PBS. So I think if I'm the Klobuchar team now looking forward, I'm, I'm planning to go, okay, we've got all these great moments. Maybe we've got a few more eyeballs. How do we take some of those 
those parts and what you did and move it into Iowa uh, to make a real move at the top three? You know, it, uh, Emily, this isn't the first time that at least I think she's performed well in the debate. I actually think she's been a pretty steady performer mm-hmm. throughout, really and good at driving her message of, again, that I am a Midwest senator, I am electable, I am more pragmatic, which whatever the merits of that strategy, I feel like she executes well. She makes clear to the audience that that's what she's about, for better or worse. You know, I, I want to pick out a particular part of last night's debate, though, that, again, really stood out. It seems like she has a bone to pick with Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. <laughs> she really seems like people were making this point on Twitter as well that he seems to get under her skin, and she really took it upon herself to point out that, you know, he was almost being disrespectful to everyone else on stage, that disregarding uh, their level of experience. It really seemed notable, too, just because people in the past have been a little bit more hesitant yeah. to go after him. Not last night, but but she really seemed to lead the charge. What did you make of it when she decided to, to take him on? Well, remember, she was also the one who, I don't know, a month or two ago made the comment that if Buttigieg was a woman, he wouldn't be on stage. Yes. So yes. she there's clearly something that she resents about his success. And she seems to think that he is a little bit too precocious in terms of <laughs> his ambitions, given all the other folks on stage have these long records, or relatively long records, maybe not Andrew Yang, but he has a long record in business, of, of accomplishment. And, and she really defended her accomplishments as a state lawmaker, as a senator. And he came back and talked a little bit about his military record and whatnot. But I think that that was an important moment. And it was an interesting moment because ideologically, they're not necessarily that far apart. That's a, that's a very good so, point. You would think they would almost be like ideological allies. Right, right. So, And they're both from the Midwest. I mean, in a way, maybe she thinks she needs to take him down a little right. bit to build up her own numbers. So right. there may be some strategy involved, but it also did seem a little bit personal. Like she seemed <laughs> did, kind right? of fed up with all of this hype. And I think it goes back to, again, what she said earlier this fall, which is that I think she genuinely believes that he's getting the benefit of being a white male candidate that people aren't seeing through some of his weaknesses in a way that she has not gotten the benefit of. And you can tell she doesn't think that's fair. It's, it's, it's odd. You wouldn't have expected Klobuchar would be the one to on stage channel some of that anger at Pete Buttigieg that we see from the online left and yeah. from the activist left. But she seemed to do it the the best. Now, look, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit. Pete Buttigieg took incoming from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders as well. And I was talking with someone yesterday, Dave, who was speculating even before last night's debate about Klobuchar sneaking into the top four or potentially beyond. And this seems like an important development in in the Iowa caucuses and in the whole primary uh, because, look, if Klobuchar sneaks into the top four, that means someone in the top four is dropping the fifth. So I think the Klobuchar confrontation of Buttigieg is all about Iowa mm-hmm. because – you look at these two candidates and you're like, well, why aren't they attacking Biden? Biden's a front runner. But if you look at Iowa, that is Buttigieg's strongest state. Two of the last three polls show him as the leader in Iowa, including the Des Moines Register, which is sort of the marquee poll there. Klobuchar doesn't have a path to go on without Iowa. She's a neighboring senator from Minnesota. Iowa is her strongest state. So I watched that Buttigieg-Klobuchar confrontation and said, OK, this is about Iowa. And Klobuchar is trying to get in that top three. Uh, fourth place would be good, but I think she wants to be in the top three, and that's a ticket for her. And that would be a surprising outcome, right? If we're sitting on the caucus night and she's in the top three, 
that means she has beat expectations, and we're all talking about Amy Klobuchar. And who is at the top of that? It's Pete Buttigieg. You know, we've talked about this before. The fourth place finisher in Iowa is, is probably the most important finisher in a way uh-huh. because <laughs> that's a that's a tough slot. One mm-hmm. of those top four: Biden, Bernie, Warren, Buttigieg will likely be in fourth place. Now you've got this Klobuchar factor. One of them could be in fifth place. That's probably a death knell. One of mm-hmm. that's probably an elimination type of finish. Obviously, it's all about Iowa because Iowa is first. But I think particularly for Klobuchar. Yeah, and just, and just thinking ahead, and this is, is probably needless kind of speculation, but I was wondering to myself last night, how exactly would Joe Biden criticize Amy Klobuchar? You know, he's, he can't really go after her on experience. Yeah. He can't really go after her on electability. It's oh. just a trickier situation as opposed to someone like Buttigieg if he ended up in a confrontation with him. There's a kind of obvious experience argument to make. Anyway, mm-hmm. just, just something to think about uh, to noodle on as we move forward. Speaking of the former vice president, it seemed like there was a unanimous agreement last night, at least among all the non-Biden critics, that Biden had his best debate performance last night. He looked smooth. He looked commanding. He wasn't always necessarily at the forefront of the debate, uh, particularly as Warren and, and Buttigieg were arguing or Sanders or Buttigieg or Klobuchar and Buttigieg. But it seemed like in the moments that he had, he performed well. And look, his standing in the polls, as we talked about many times in the show, have, have remained strong throughout, despite all the criticism. But they haven't been good. And in fact, if you look at polls, people regularly rate him as the worst performer on stage. He just still earns a, at least a plurality of support from Democratic voters across the country. What was the difference as, as far as your concern, Emily? What were some of his stronger moments and what do you think kind of going forward it means for his campaign? Well, he had that retort, right, when uh, one of the moderators asked about Obama's recent comments that younger women should be elected office. And, and Biden either seemed prepared for that or he just, like, was really quick on his feet in terms of responding. Well, I don't think he meant me. <laughs> and he did it in a really crisp way, which reminds me, having watched Biden in prior debates, of, like, the old Biden. Because, honestly, my recollections of 2008, while he didn't get a lot of airtime, he was actually one of the most memorable candidates on the stage, he had like a lot of good zingers. Even against Paul Ryan in the vice presidential debates, he was really effective, I thought. So it's not like Biden hasn't been a good debater. It's not like he doesn't have experience on a debate stage. I think he's just come off in early debates as kind of a little bit bumbling, a little bit befuddled, has a hard time getting his words out or connecting his thoughts. Seems to struggle even with the the time that he's given. You know, he didn't cut himself off, which no other candidate does. It's like an ultimate no-no for a candidate. It just sort of reinforced concerns about whether he's really up to the task of running for president and taking on Trump. And so I think seeing a little bit of that flashes of of the old Biden will be reassuring to people who maybe have been a little worried about his stamina and his age and some of the other things. He also benefits from a low bar because <laughs> he's been so bad <laughs> does. in the previous debates that I think it's like, oh, he's coherent and he's like speaking in complete sentences. It's, uh, this is a, a upgrade. So. I also think they're all getting better at yeah. these just because it's like doing your reps. This right. is debate right. six. And I think, you know, there's a rhythm to these and they've heard a lot of the questions before. They've been through six preparation sessions, most of them, if they're taken as seriously. So I think actually across the board, from Biden to Buttigieg, even Andrew Yang, I think they're crisper, they know their answers, and they're they're less apt to make a mistake. Yeah, I actually think it's quietly a reason why Bernie Sanders has done well in these debates, because he got all those reps in 2016. And, right, and look, right. yeah, I mean, practice helps make perfect. You know, it, it's just the same as it is in your life. When 
you just do something more. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Although Bernie so had a kind of a tough debate last night with those two answers on race, where yeah. he kind of got called out. Little... So he had he you know it wasn't his best performance, but but your overall point, I, I'm on board. With. So I um, yeah, the moment that really stuck out to me for for Biden was when he defended his calls for bipartisanship by saying that if anyone has any reason to dislike Republicans right now, it's him because they're going after yeah. him, his son, his family, and it was a powerful moment. Not just because it was a real forceful defense of his calls for bipartisanship, which has yeah. gotten a lot of criticism from the left, but he's also using impeachment in a big moment in the right. in the campaign on on stage in a debate and and pointing out what everyone knows that hey look they're coming after me and the implicit message there is because they worry about me the most they think I am the strongest candidate on stage and that's a powerful message and we have talked endlessly and everyone has talked endlessly about the importance of electability for candidates and he has a way to make that point that no one else on stage does because of everything that has has happened with Ukraine and the impeachment process you know we have talked the last few days about where Biden stands in the overall primary at this point and it feels to me like personally I've kind of come all the way around on this you know where we kept just waiting for him throughout the year of 2019 I feel like the story for Biden was just waiting for the bottom to drop out and yeah. maybe the bottom will drop out at some point however he still leads the national polls he still has the broadest coalition he has set up really well for a lot of states after Iowa and New Hampshire but that's the question and that's the question for you is he at a point now where the the strategy has to be can he survive Iowa and New Hampshire and if he does is he a prohibitive favorite to win this thing? I think he can survive as long as what you just said, the bottom doesn't fall out. We also just wrote, three of us, about how next month, if there is a Senate impeachment trial, whether that benefits Joe Biden. And there is some disagreement between Democrats. There's some who believe any mention of Hunter Biden and the whole implicit allegation of corruption hurts Biden. Others think, look, if it's about Trump's targeting of Biden to, to target an opponent he feared. It makes Biden the candidate the Democrats are going to rally around. TBD. We'll see how this Senate trial unfolds, if there's witnesses, if it's a long thing, it's a, if it's a short ordeal. But I'm coming more to Biden could win this thing. And I think if he overperforms in Iowa, New Hampshire, I mean, a second place is a pretty good finish for him in Iowa. Second place in New Hampshire, which is going to be home turf for Bernie and Warren. Again, expectations lower for Biden. He just can't, you know, he can't be at 7%. I think he's got to be in the top three. And then if he routes, if he can show that he is a candidate that goes out to Nevada, rallies Hispanic support, Asian American support, goes to South Carolina, shows a big victory, powerful victory there, then I think he can sustain the two losses and say, look, I've got the diverse coalition, and he's going to have a lot of support in the party that says, you know what, he is the leader that can win black votes and our most loyal voters. And I think that is a case that he can carry into Super Tuesday when the states get bigger, more diverse. He has more name ID than a lot of even these other candidates. I know we've been living with Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg for a year now, but they're still not as known as Joe Biden if you look inside these polls. So that's, of course, the ideal scenario for him. But again, if he's at that fourth place in Iowa, fourth place and second place is a big difference. It's a it's a big difference. And as we have talked many times, there's no guarantee that he finishes in that top three. There, uh, and, and the way things going, if Klobuchar really is going to, at least in Iowa, emerge in that top tier, then it's a, a race to make sure you don't finish fifth right. either. And so, it, you know, it, it, it is interesting to, to the point you just made. You can see a scenario where after 
Super Tuesday if he does really well. There has got to be some big, large chunk of the Democratic Party, even people who don't support him, who if they see this race really starting to move toward him, are going to nod their heads and say, that makes yeah, sense. Salute. Right. You know, that now there is going to be a furious resistance from some on the left. I think that's that's for sure. And I'm not saying that the race would end after Super Tuesday by any But the any left means. is divided in a lot of ways. That, right. So, you know, right. if it was just Bernie or just Warren, but now they're splitting a portion of their vote at least. So right. that's a factor to put in all this as well. Okay, Emily, so it was also hard to miss last night how it seemed like Pete Buttigieg was everyone's favorite punching bag. You had everything from... Bernie Sanders mocking the number of billionaires who have donated to his campaign. We talked about how Klobuchar went after some of his perceived slights against experience. And, of course, you had a showdown with Elizabeth Warren. And I think arguably almost the catchphrase that comes out of this debate, wine caves, you know, criticizing <laughs> him for holding Looks a great, fundraiser. by the way, to be there. Yeah, right. Not if you're a candidate. Anyway. Right, right, exactly. So we finally had this moment where the, the rest of the people on stage – it didn't happen last month. We right. expected this to happen last month. It didn't happen last month. Kind of realized that, oh, he's a top-tier candidate, and if we don't do something about it, he could run away with this thing in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then who knows beyond that. And so my question is, is the Buttigieg surge over, do we think? I know that's a difficult question mm-hmm. to answer. We have seen him in national polls kind of peak and then maybe even fall back by a few points. I guess the question I'm really asking is, do you think that the criticism leveled against him last night, the sustained criticism, is enough to get people to think twice uh, about that? I think the transparency issue, the fundraising issue, I know that animates a certain slice of the Democratic base. But to me, I thought he was pretty effective in coming back and saying, look, like Donald Trump has $300 million and we need all the resources we can muster to beat him. Um, he was clearly prepared for that attack. He's also opened up his fundraisers. The reason we even know about the wine cave is because there were reporters there taking pictures. It popped up on Twitter pretty soon after that exchange. I think that kind of dies down. But what I do think, there's two things. One that came up last night and one thing that didn't really come up last night. The, the first being his experience level. I think that's the fact that he's not even 40 years old yet. The fact that he's struggled at times as mayor of this small Indiana town. As Amy Klobuchar pointed out, he did run statewide in Indiana and he didn't win. He went after his electability. Yeah. Which I don't think a lot of people have, has really been a criticism that's been front and center for him. Right. In any way. Right. And so I think those concerns might bubble up a little bit more now, just reinforcing his lack of experience and certainly his lack of experience on a national stage. But the other thing I think that's probably even a bigger problem for him is his lack of support amongst people of color. I know that he's in Los Angeles this week. He's doing town halls with Latino voters. He's done a what seems to be more visible, concerted outreach to Latinos. I don't know where that goes. I'm sure, again, his lack of name ID is a pretty big barrier there. But black voters seem very skeptical of him despite his efforts to do outreach. And I think that's just a really huge hurdle for him. Even if he does do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, maybe that alone helps him in South Carolina. But I'm I'm skeptical given the criticism I've seen in that community of him that he's really going to be able to surmount that opposition. It didn't come up as much last night, but that to me is his biggest problem. It does feel it does feel like time is starting to run out uh, yeah. for, for him. I mean, literally, you know, there's only going to be a month before the Iowa caucuses. Barring some kind of huge breakthrough there, you have to ask yourself, what is it going to take a span of mere weeks for him to start to win over voters of color? You know, I will, I will say for him last night, he didn't take the criticism standing down. And in fact, with Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren, you know, he really counterpunched well, I thought. She talked called about her a Mike, hypocrite. Called her, called her a hypocrite yeah. and then pointed out her own personal wealth, yes. suggested that if she had donated to his campaign, would that have made him 
somehow compromised on, on policy. And, and the Warren Buttigieg sort of tiff, this is ongoing now. This is the first right. time we really saw it sort of face-to-face. But We've been at it at about a month, but the question is they're, they're in third and fourth place for the most part. So they're fighting each other, and I don't think it's helping either of them. I think last night is probably a wash. And if you look at it from a regular voter's perspective, you know, they're fighting about is it inherently corrupt to be behind closed doors raising money from rich people rather than just getting it $5, $10 online? That is such an arcane, insidery, procedural debate that I think many people that just want to be Trump, you know, like my brother who was texting me last night being like, why are we talking about this? <laughs> Democrats are, you know, shooting themselves. Like, I don't care about this. And I think that's always a reminder, you know, he's not a political person. He's just watching this as a, as a, as a viewer. I think they're fighting to a draw on this. I think Buttigieg had a great response. I think putting Warren on defensive for her own past Senate fundraising, where she basically did the same practices that he's doing now. But again, if anything, over the last month, Warren has been on a bit of a descent from her late summer, early fall no, high. No, no doubt about it. And Buttigieg is sort of stuck. He's at 8 9% national polls. There's one Iowa poll that had him coming down a bit. He may still be ahead there. But, you know, I think his team is knowing that he needs more than Iowa if he's going to really make a true run at this nomination. So I just don't think it... This, this sort of odd debate about money is a good look for either Warren and Pete. I think they're better on their, you know, their other issues, whether it be health care or, you know, a, a tax on the rich. How you're going to help Americans, I think, is more attractive to Democratic voters and voters in general. Is, are you saying then if it's a draw between the two of them that it's a win for Joe Biden? Maybe it's I think a win it's, yeah, I think it's a win for Joe Biden and Bernie, frankly. And be- Amy Klobuchar. And Amy and Klobuchar, Amy Klobuchar <laughs> right. the new, I mean, well, what we're going to see, right, is there a poll that comes out in a week? I mean, I don't know if anybody's in the field on Christmas, so right. we probably have to wait until January, and that's kind of a long time to see Like, does Klobuchar reap the benefit of what we are all saying was a nice performance? So was there anything else that stood out to us last night? I mean, I will say we noted it in our recap, just out of sight, out of mind, Mike Bloomberg. You know, I figured he would be kind of the missing man in the room. He has spent $100 million advertising. So didn't get mentioned even by Bernie or Warren. I, uh, you know, I was wondering before the debate, would it benefit him to be mentioned even if he couldn't defend himself against attack from Bernie and Warren, presumably he liked to go after billionaires, but it didn't even reach that level. He was just completely out of sight, out of mind. Anything else stand out to you guys last night? I mean, for the second debate in a row, Andrew Yang had the least amount of speaking time. And this time he was the only candidate of color on the stage. I just think it's striking that we've gotten to this point in the Democratic primary where everyone up there pretty much except for Yang is white and the people dominating the the debate and the race at this point are all white. And I thought that was noticeable last night. Yang talked a little bit about being the only candidate of color, but he also acknowledged that as an Asian American, as a son of Asian immigrants, his experience is very different than the African-American experience or even the Latino experience. And I I do think that that absence on that stage made for a different debate. And I'm curious how that's going to play out in January when the DNC announces its new requirements for the next set of debates, if they're going to make more of an effort to get some of those candidates of color back on the stage, if people who are, you know, black or Latino voters, if they start to really voice complaints. I know Yang has been at it for like a month now complaining about his lack of speaking time and his lack of exposure and sort of the media blackout. But 
to me that was that was notable. Yeah, I mean, speaking of people who weren't on stage, it feels like if Amy Klobuchar, and I know we're talking a lot about Klobuchar, we don't know yet <laughs> if she is going to surge. But look, it was a strong performance, and she has crept up in, in a lot of polls in Iowa. Look, it is, it is possibly just one more bit of bad news for the Cory Booker campaign. Again, speaking of someone who was out of sight, out of mind. Um, but there's just only so much capacity for voters to think and talk about candidates. And if Amy Klobuchar makes it five in the top tier, it just makes it that much harder for Cory Booker. Dave, anything else? Any other lingering thoughts from last night? I'll just make a self-serving point about a Bloomberg story I have up since I was sort of in Bloomberg world this week about their build out. I mean, they're just running a total parallel race. And I'm talking to his aides. They just don't think these debates have mattered. And they point to the first five that really haven't moved the race. So he's running this parallel race where he's like skipping the first four and spending all his time in places like North Carolina and Georgia and Arizona and California, basically Super Tuesday and beyond. And this wouldn't matter except that he is spending an exorbitant amount of money. And we have a story up on uh, McClatchy DC today about 200 staffers that he's put into 21 states. And I talked to other Democrats. I'm like, you know, is this like real? Is this? A and Democratic operatives think this is real. Now he needs, you know, he needs sort of the perfect scenario to happen. Four different winners in four states, a delegate fight that's prolonged, and then he comes in. But basically his theory is nobody's going to have this wrapped up. And the first four states offer basically no delegates, 10% of them, whereas March offers 65%. And I'm going to be on the air there and have offices there and have boots on the ground there longer and more of them than anyone else. It's a long shot theory, but I think it's something that we should consider if this is a prolonged race. He will be a factor in these other candidates' calculations, whoever makes it to Super Tuesday. Okay. So let's move on to uh, my favorite segment every week. Tell me something I don't know. Empty your reporter's notebook. Tell me, the listeners, everyone else, something that they haven't heard about in the normal given pool of the news week. Emily, you're up first. So I was digging into a lot of Senate rule archives this week to, to figure out exactly what this pending Senate impeachment trial would mean for the four or five senators who are running for president. Life, life of a reporter, folks, is yeah. a nonstop set of thrills. <laughs> I, I kind of like that stuff. I'm, I'm a geek that way. But it was interesting to read the actual rules and what it will mean in terms of the oath that senators are supposed to take to not speak, to not colloquy, quote unquote. There's a lot of ambiguity as to whether that restricts senators from talking about the impeachment trial outside of the Senate. But the person holding the power in this regard is Mitch McConnell and the Republican majority. They will vote on the rules package on the Senate floor for the impeachment trial. And, you know, I think we pointed out earlier, we don't know for sure at this point when this trial is actually happening or how long it will last. But it's almost like without dispute that it will mess up the schedules for these five senators to a certain degree. And and just how much it messes them up will be decided by Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans. So I think that's going to be interesting to watch. Okay. Dave, you're up. So, there, I mean, this is sort of a perennial debate in the Democratic Party, but I think it is even heightened this year. More Democratic operatives, lawmakers I talk to, they're debating this within each other, even on the halls of Congress. What is better for the Democratic Party? A long primary where they dominate the debate, and they have their candidates on cable TV, in our living rooms every night, or a short primary that, you know, rallies around a Biden or a Warren, and then the party unites, and it's all about Trump. And, the, you know, the more lawmakers, the more Democratic strategists, the more campaigns I talk to, 
they're, they're fighting about this even internally, about what is better ultimately for the party. Because on the one hand, a long fight, you know, we're throwing mud at each other about fundraisers and all this for six months. It's going to look like we're in a food fight and we got to focus on Trump. But on the other hand, some Democrats say, like, look, once we have a nominee, there's no media attention on us, and then it's all about Trump. The one thing we can do, if we have a fight, and they go back to 08, and they said it helped Obama, that long Hillary-Obama fight, they're like, that primary was better for Obama because he got stronger, and it got more Democrats activated and energized around the country. Everyone got to vote. Every vote mattered, and that was good for the party, and we won. So I just think it's going to be an interesting question and very strong opinions on both sides about what is better for the party and how ultimately they resolve this. 2008, it worked out pretty well for Democrats. It did. 2016, right? Uh, maybe a little less. Maybe, maybe not. Little. Right. Exactly. There's, <laughs> but, there's but arguments on both sides. Yes. But, that's, but that's the argument. Yeah. So mine is kind of piggybacking off Dave's point. There is a lot of nervous uh, nervousness and anxiety about what happens to the Democratic nominee when he or she emerges, whether that is in April or May or even all the way to the convention because here's why. Donald Trump is raising a ton of money and he is going to be able to define the candidate when they're at their weakest, when they haven't transitioned to the general election. My point is I'm going to leave you with a number. It's $260 million. That is what one senior Democratic operative tracking 2020 estimates the Trump campaign and his allies will spend just between the point when the nominee emerges in, in this scenario in April and the convention in mid-July, that is just a couple of months, they think he could bring that much money to bear. Most of it pointed at the nascent Democratic nominee. And it's just the reason this is going to be one, maybe arguably the most important period of the general election is when that nominee emerges, when they haven't been able to necessarily define themselves quite as well. And they don't have the resources to to repel fire of that magnitude, if, if you will. Again, $260 million, it's a mind-boggling amount of money. It's a lot of wine caves. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot of wine cave fundraisers. I think. I think you'd have to have a cave that extended all the way across California to try to, to match that kind of money. So that's the 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 figure to to keep in mind. One quick plug before we leave: uh, next week's show will come out as regularly scheduled on Thursday. It will be our year end wrap up. Myself, Adam Wallner, and Kristen Roberts discuss the year that was, the lessons we learned, and make a few predictions for 2020. So get ready for that. And one additional note, we will not have a show the week of New Year's. We will be back the second week of January as regularly scheduled, and we'll be eager to take you through the Democratic primary and, in fact, the general election in, in 2020. So buckle up. Okay. Thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. 